1 Thessalonians, Chapter 5 Matthew Henry's Commentary on the Whole Bible An Exposition, with Practical Observations, of The First Epistle of St. Paul to the Thessalonians Chapter 5 the Apostle, having spoken in the end of the foregoing chapter concerning the resurrection and the second coming of Christ, proceeds to speak concerning the uselessness of inquiring after the particular time of Christ's coming, which would be sudden and terrible to the wicked, but comfortable to the saints, verses 1-5. He then exhorts them to the duties of watchfulness, sobriety, and the exercise of faith, love, and hope, as being suitable to their state, verses 6-10. In the next words he exhorts them to several duties they owe to others, or to one another, verses 11-15, afterwards to several other Christian duties of great importance, verse 16-22, and then concludes this epistle, verses 23-28. 1 Thessalonians 5 verses 1-5 In these words observe. 1. The Apostle tells the Thessalonians it was needless or useless to inquire about the particular time of Christ's coming, of the times and seasons you need, not that I write unto you, verse 1. The thing is certain that Christ will come, and there is a certain time appointed for his coming, but there was no need that the Apostle should write about this, and therefore he had no revelation given him, nor should they or we inquire into the secret, which the Father has reserved in his own power. Of that day and hour knoweth no man. Christ himself did not reveal this while upon earth, it was not in his commission as the great prophet of the church, nor did he reveal this to his apostles, there was no need of this. There are times and seasons for us to do our work in, these it is our duty and interest to know and observe, but the time and season when we must give up our account we know not, nor is it needful that we should know them. Note, there are many things which our vain curiosity desires to know which there is no necessity at all of our knowing, nor would our knowledge of them do us good. 2. He tells them that the coming of Christ would be sudden and a great surprise to most men, verse 2. And this is what they knew perfectly, or might know, because our Lord himself had so said, In such an hour as you think not, the Son of Man cometh, Matthew 24 verse 44. So Mark 13 verses 35 and 36, Watch you therefore, for you know not when the Master of the house cometh, lest, coming suddenly, he find you sleeping. And no doubt, the Apostle had told them, as of the coming of Christ, so also of his coming suddenly, which is the meaning of his coming as a thief in the night, Revelation 16 verse 15. As the thief usually cometh in the dead time of the night, when he is least expected, such a surprise will the day of the Lord be, so sudden and surprising will be his appearance. The knowledge of this will be more useful than to know the exact time, because this should awaken us to stand upon our watch, that we may be ready whenever he cometh. 3. He tells them how terrible Christ's coming would be to the ungodly, verse 3. It will be to their destruction in that day of the Lord. The righteous God will bring ruin upon his and his people's enemies, and this their destruction, as it will be total and final, so. 1. It will be sudden. It will overtake them and fall upon them in the midst of their carnal security and jollity, when they say in their hearts, peace and safety, when they dream of felicity and please themselves with vain amusements of their fancies or their senses, and think not of it, as travail cometh upon a woman with child, at the set time indeed, but not perhaps just then expected, nor greatly feared. 2. It will be unavoidable destruction too, they shall not escape, they shall in no wise escape. There will be no means possible for them to avoid the terror nor the punishment of that day. There will be no place where the workers of iniquity shall be able to hide themselves, no shelter from the storm, nor shadow from the burning heat that shall consume the wicked. 
4. He tells them how comfortable this day will be to the righteous, verses 4 and 5. Here observe. 1. Their character and privilege. They are not in darkness, they are the children of the light, etc. This was the happy condition of the Thessalonians as it is of all true Christians. They were not in a state of sin and ignorance as the heathen world. They were sometime darkness, but were made light in the Lord. They were favored with the divine revelation of things that are unseen and eternal, particularly concerning the coming of Christ and the consequences thereof. They were the children of the day, for the day star had risen upon them, yeah, the Son of Righteousness had arisen on them with healing under His wings. They were no longer under the darkness of heathenism nor under the shadows of the law, but under the gospel, which brings life and immortality to light. 2 Timothy 1 verse 10 2. Their great advantage on this account, that that day should not overtake them as a thief, verse 4. It was at least their own fault if they were surprised by that day. They had fair warning and sufficient helps to provide against that day, and might hope to stand with comfort and confidence before the Son of Man. This would be a time of refreshing to them from the presence of the Lord, who to those that look for Him will appear without sin unto their salvation, and will come to them as a friend in the day, not as a thief in the night. 1 Thessalonians 5 verses 6-10 On what had been said, the Apostle grounds seasonable exhortations to several needful duties. 1. To watchfulness and sobriety, verse 6. These duties are distinct, yet they mutually befriend one another. For, while we are compassed about with so many temptations to intemperance and excess, we shall not keep sober, unless we be upon our guard, and, unless we keep sober, we shall not long watch. 1. Then let us not sleep, as do others, but let us watch, we must not be secure and careless, nor indulge spiritual sloth and idleness. We must not be off our watch, but continually upon our guard against sin and temptation to it. The generality of men are too careless of their duty and regardless of their spiritual enemies. They say, peace and safety, when they are in the greatest danger, doze away their precious moments on which eternity depends, indulging idle dreams, and have no more thoughts nor cares about another world than men that are asleep have about this. Either they do not consider the things of another world at all, because they are asleep, or they do not consider them aright, because they dream. But let us watch, and act like men that are awake, and that stand upon their guard. 2. Let us also be sober, or temperate and moderate. Let us keep our natural desires and appetites after the things of this world within due bounds. Sobriety is usually opposed to excess in meats and drinks, and here particularly it is opposed to drunkenness, but it also extends to all other temporal things. Thus our Savior warned His disciples to take heed lest their hearts should be overcharged with surfeiting and drunkenness, and cares of this life, and so that day come on them unawares, Luke 21 verse 34. Our moderation then, as to all temporal things, should be known to all men, because the Lord is at hand. Besides this, watchfulness and sobriety are most suitable to the Christian's character and privilege, as being children of the day, because those that sleep sleep in the night, and those that are drunken are drunken in the night, verse 7. It is a most reproachful thing for men to sleep away the daytime, which is for work and not for sleep, to be drunken in the day, when so many eyes are upon them, to behold their shame. It was not so strange if those who had not the benefit of divine revelation suffered themselves to be lulled asleep by the devil in carnal security, and if they laid the reins upon the neck of their appetites, and indulged themselves in all manner of riot and excess, for it was night time with them. They were not sensible of their danger, therefore they slept, 
they were not sensible of their duty, therefore they were drunk, but it ill becomes Christians to do thus. What? Shall Christians, who have the light of the blessed gospel shining in their faces, be careless about their souls, and unmindful of another world? Those who have so many eyes upon them should conduct themselves with peculiar propriety. 2. To be well armed as well as watchful, to put on the whole armor of God. This is necessary in order to such sobriety as becomes us and will be a preparation for the day of the Lord, because our spiritual enemies are many, and mighty, and malicious. They draw many to their interest, and keep them in it, by making them careless, secure, and presumptuous, by making them drunk-drunk with pride, drunk with passion, drunk and giddy with self-conceit, drunk with the gratifications of sense, so that we have need to arm ourselves against their attempts, by putting on the spiritual breastplate to keep the heart, and the spiritual helmet to secure the head. And this spiritual armor consists of three great graces of Christians, faith, love, and hope. Verse 8. 1. We must live by faith and this will keep us watchful and sober. If we believe that the eye of God, who is a spirit, is always upon us, that we have spiritual enemies to grapple with, that there is a world of spirits to prepare for, we shall see reason to watch and be sober. Faith will be our best defense against the assaults of our enemies. 2. We must get a heart inflamed with love, and this also will be our defense. True and fervent love to God, and the things of God, will keep us watchful and sober, and hinder our apostasy in times of trouble and temptation. 3. We must make salvation our hope, and should have a lively hope of it. This good hope, through grace of eternal life, will be as a helmet to defend the head, and hinder our being intoxicated with the pleasures of sin, which are but for a season. If we have hope of salvation, let us take heed of doing anything that shall shake our hopes, or render us unworthy of or unfit for the great salvation we hope for. Having mentioned salvation and the hope of it, the Apostle shows what grounds and reasons Christians have to hope for this salvation, as to which observe, he says nothing of their meriting it. No, the doctrine of our merits is altogether unscriptural and antiscriptural, there is no foundation of any good hope upon that account. But our hopes are to be grounded. 1. Upon God's appointment, because God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation, verse 9. If we would trace our salvation to the first cause, that is God's appointment. Those who live and die in darkness and ignorance, who sleep and are drunken as in the night, are, it is but too plain, appointed to wrath, but as for those who are of the day, if they watch and be sober, it is evident that they are appointed to obtain salvation. And the sureness and firmness of the divine appointment are the great support and encouragement of our hope. Were we to obtain salvation by our own merit or power, we could have but little or no hope of it, but seeing we are to obtain it by virtue of God's appointment, which we are sure cannot be shaken, for His purpose, according to election, shall stand, on this we build unshaken hope, especially when we consider. 2. Christ's merit and grace, and that salvation is by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. Our salvation therefore is owing to, and our hopes of it are grounded on, Christ's atonement as well as God's appointment, and, as we should think on God's gracious design and purpose, so also on Christ's death and sufferings, for this end, that whether we wake or sleep, whether we live or die, for death is but a sleep to believers, as the apostles had before intimated, we should live together with Christ, live in union and in glory with Him forever. And, as it is the salvation that Christians hope for to be forever with the Lord, so one foundation of their hope is their union with Him. And if they are united with Christ, and live in Him, and live to Him, here, the sleep of death will be no prejudice to the spiritual life, much less to the life of glory hereafter.
On the contrary, Christ died for us, that, living and dying, we might be his, that we might live to him while we are here, and live with him when we go hence. 1 Thessalonians 5 verses 11-15 In these words the Apostle exhorts the Thessalonians to several duties. 1. Towards those who were nearly related one to another. Such should comfort themselves, or exhort one another, and edify one another, verse 11. 1. They must comfort or exhort themselves and one another, for the original word may be rendered both these ways. And we may observe, as those are most able and likely to comfort others who can comfort themselves, so the way to have comfort ourselves, or to administer comfort to others, is by compliance with the exhortation of the word. Note, we should not only be careful about our own comfort and welfare, but to promote the comfort and welfare of others also. He was a cane that said, Am I my brother's keeper? We must bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. 2. They must edify one another, by following after those things whereby one may edify another, Romans 14 verse 19. As Christians are lively stones built up together a spiritual house, they should endeavor to promote the good of the whole church by promoting the work of grace in one another. And it is the duty of every one of us to study that which is for the edification of those with whom we converse, to please all men for their real profit. We should communicate our knowledge and experiences one to another. We should join in prayer and praise one with another. We should set a good example one before another. And it is the duty of those especially who live in the same vicinity and family thus to comfort and edify one another, and this is the best neighborhood, the best means to answer the end of society. Such as are nearly related together and have affection for one another, as they have the greatest opportunity, so they are under the greatest obligation, to do this kindness one to another. This the Thessalonians did, which also you do, and this is what they are exhorted to continue and increase in doing. Note, those who do that which is good have need of further exhortations to excite them to do good, to do more good, as well as continue in doing what they do. 2. He shows them their duty towards their ministers, verses 12 and 13. Though the apostle himself was driven from them, yet they had others who labored among them, and to whom they owed these duties. The apostle here exhorts them to observe. 1. How the ministers of the gospel are described by the work of their office, and they should rather mind the work and duty they are called to than affect venerable and honorable names that they may be called by. Their work is very weighty, and very honorable and useful. 1. Ministers must labor among their people, labor with diligence, and unto weariness, so the word in the original imports, they must labor in the word and doctrine, 1 Timothy 5 verse 17. They are called laborers, and should not be loiterers. They must labor with their people, to instruct, comfort, and edify them. And 2. Ministers are to rule their people also, so the word is rendered, 1 Timothy 5 verse 17. They must rule, not with rigor, but with love. They must not exercise dominion as temporal lords, but rule as spiritual guides, by setting a good example to the flock. They are over the people in the Lord, to distinguish them from civil magistrates, and to denote also that they are but ministers under Christ, appointed by Him, and must rule the people by Christ's laws, and not by laws of their own. This may also intimate the end of their office and all their labor, namely, the service and honor of the Lord. 3. They must also admonish the people, and that not only publicly, but privately, as there may be occasion. They must instruct them to do well, and should reprove when they do ill. 
It is their duty not only to give good counsel, but also to give admonition, to give warning to the flock of the dangers they are liable to, and reproof for negligence or what else may be amiss. 2. What the duty of the people is towards their ministers. There is a mutual duty between ministers and people. If ministers should labor among the people, then 1. The people must know them. As the shepherd should know his flock, so the sheep must know their shepherd. They must know his person, hear his voice, acknowledge him for their pastor, and pay due regard to his teaching, ruling, and admonitions. 2. They must esteem their ministers highly in love, they should greatly value the office of the ministry, honor and love the persons of their ministers, and show their esteem and affection in all proper ways, and this for their work's sake, because their business is to promote the honor of Christ and the welfare of men's souls. Note, faithful ministers ought to be so far from being lightly esteemed because of their work that they should be highly esteemed on account of it. The work of the ministry is so far from being a disgrace to those who upon other accounts deserve esteem that it puts an honor upon those who are faithful and diligent, to which otherwise they could lay no claim, and will procure them that esteem and love among good people which otherwise they could not expect. 3. He gives divers other exhortations touching the duty Christians owe to one another. 1. To be at peace among themselves, verse 13. Some understand this exhortation, according to the reading in some copies, as referring to the people's duty to their ministers, to live peaceably with them, and not raise nor promote dissensions at any time between minister and people, which will certainly prove a hindrance to the success of a minister's work and the edification of the people. This is certain, that ministers and people should avoid everything that tends to alienate their affections one from another and the people should be at peace among themselves, doing all they can to hinder any differences from rising or continuing among them, and using all proper means to preserve peace and harmony. 2. To warn the unruly, verse 14. There will be in all societies some who walk disorderly, who go out of their rank and station, and it is not only the duty of ministers, but of private Christians also, to warn and admonish them. Such should be reproved for their sin, warned of their danger, and told plainly of the injury they do their own souls, and the hurt they may do to others. Such should be put in mind of what they should do, and be reproved for doing otherwise. 3. To comfort the feeble-minded, verse 14. By these are intended the timorous and faint-hearted, or such as are dejected and of a sorrowful spirit. Some are cowardly, afraid of difficulties, and disheartened at the thoughts of hazards and losses and afflictions, now such should be encouraged, we should not despise them, but comfort them, and who knows what good a kind and comfortable word may do them. 4. To support the weak, verse 14. Some are not well able to perform their work, nor bear up under their burdens, we should therefore support them, help their infirmities, and lift at one end of the burden, and so help to bear it. It is the grace of God, indeed, that must strengthen and support such, but we should tell them of that grace, and endeavor to minister of that grace to them. 5. To be patient towards all men, verse 14. We must bear and forbear. We must be long-suffering, and suppress our anger, if it begin to rise upon the apprehension of affronts or injuries, at least we must not fail to moderate our anger, and this duty must be exercised towards all men, good and bad, high and low. We must not be high in our expectations and demands, nor harsh in our resentments, nor hard in our impositions, but endeavor to make the best we can of everything, and think the best we can of everybody. 6. Not to render evil for evil to any man, verse 15. This we must look to, and be very careful about, that is, we must by all means forbear to avenge ourselves. 
If others do us an injury, this will not justify us in returning it, in doing the same, or the like, or any other injury to them. It becomes us to forgive, as those that are, and that hope to be, forgiven of God. 7. Ever to follow that which is good, verse 15. In general, we must study to do what is our duty, and pleasing to God, in all circumstances, whether men do us good turns or ill turns, whatever men do to us, we must do good to others. We must always endeavor to be beneficent and instrumental to promote the welfare of others, both among ourselves, in the first place to those that are of the household of faith, and then, as we have opportunity, unto all men, Galatians 6 verse 10. 1 Thessalonians 5 verses 16 to 22. Here we have diverse short exhortations, that will not burden our memories, but will be of great use to direct the motions of our hearts and lives, for the duties are of great importance, and we may observe how they are connected together, and have a dependence upon one another. 1. Rejoice evermore, verse 16. This must be understood of spiritual joy, for we must rejoice in our creature comforts as if we rejoice not, and must not expect to live many years, and rejoice in them all, but, if we do rejoice in God, we may do that evermore. In him our joy will be full, and it is our fault if we have not a continual feast. If we are sorrowful upon any worldly account, yet still we may always rejoice, 2 Corinthians 6 verse 10. Note, a religious life is a pleasant life, it is a life of constant joy. 2. Pray without ceasing, verse 17. Note, the way to rejoice evermore is to pray without ceasing. We should rejoice more if we prayed more. We should keep up stated times for prayer, and continue instant in prayer. We should pray always, and not faint, pray without weariness, and continue in prayer, till we come to that world where prayer shall be swallowed up in praise. The meaning is not that men should do nothing but pray, but that nothing else we do should hinder prayer in its proper season. Prayer will help forward and not hinder all other lawful business, and every good work. 3. In everything give thanks, verse 18. If we pray without ceasing, we shall not want matter for thanksgiving in everything. As we must in everything make our requests known to God by supplications, so we must not omit thanksgiving, Philippians 4,6. We should be thankful in every condition, even in adversity as well as prosperity. It is never so bad with us, but it might be worse. If we have ever so much occasion to make our humble complaints to God, we never can have any reason to complain of God, and have always much reason to praise and give thanks, the Apostle says, this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning us, that we give thanks, seeing God is reconciled to us in Christ Jesus, in Him, through Him, and for His sake, He allows us to rejoice evermore, and appoints us in everything to give thanks. It is pleasing to God. For for quench not the Spirit, verse 19, for it is this Spirit of grace and supplication that helpeth our infirmities, that assisteth us in our prayers and thanksgivings. Christians are said to be baptized with the Holy Ghost and with fire. He worketh as fire, by enlightening, enlivening, and purifying the souls of men. We must be careful not to quench this holy fire. As fire is put out by withdrawing fuel, so we quench the Spirit if we do not stir up our spirits, and all that is within us, to comply with the motions of the good Spirit, and as fire is quenched by pouring water, or putting a great quantity of dirt upon it, so we must be careful not to quench the Holy Spirit by indulging carnal lusts and affections, or minding only earthly things. 5. Despise not prophesyings, verse 20, 4. If we neglect the means of grace, we forfeit the Spirit of grace. By prophesyings here we are to understand the preaching of the Word, the interpreting and applying of the Scriptures, and this we must not despise, 
but should prize and value, because it is the ordinance of God, appointed of Him for our furtherance and increase in knowledge and grace, in holiness and comfort. We must not despise preaching, though it be plain, and not with enticing words of men's wisdom, and though we be told no more than what we knew before. It is useful, and many times needful, to have our minds stirred up, our affections and resolutions excited, to those things that we knew before to be our interest and our duty. 6. Prove all things, but hold fast that which is good, verse 21. This is a needful caution, to prove all things, for, though we must put a value on preaching, we must not take things upon trust from the preacher, but try them by the law and the testimony. We must search the scriptures, whether what they say be true or not. We must not believe every spirit, but must try the spirits. But we must not be always trying, always unsettled, no, at length we must be settled, and hold fast that which is good. When we are satisfied that anything is right, and true, and good, we must hold it fast, and not let it go, whatever opposition or whatever persecution we meet with for the sake thereof. Note, the doctrines of human infallibility, implicit faith, and blind obedience, are not the doctrines of the Bible. Every Christian has and ought to have, the judgment of discretion, and should have his senses exercised in discerning between good and evil, truth and falsehood, Hebrews 5 verses 13 and 14. And proving all things must be in order to holding fast that which is good. We must not always be seekers, or fluctuating in our minds, like children tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. 7. Abstain from all appearance of evil, verse 22. This is a good means to prevent our being deceived with false doctrines, or unsettled in our faith, for our Savior has told us, John 7 verse 17, If a man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine whether it be of God. Corrupt affections indulged in the heart, and evil practices allowed of in the life, will greatly tend to promote fatal errors in the mind, whereas purity of heart and integrity of life will dispose men to receive the truth in the love of it. We should therefore abstain from evil, and all appearances of evil, from sin, and that which looks like sin, leads to it, and borders upon it. He who is not shy of the appearances of sin, who shuns not the occasions of sin, and who avoids not the temptations and approaches to sin, will not long abstain from the actual commission of sin. 1 Thessalonians 5 verses 23-28 In these words, which conclude this epistle, observe. 1. Paul's Prayer for Them, verse 23. He had told them, in the beginning of this epistle, that he always made mention of them in his prayers, and, now that he is writing to them, he lifts up his heart to God in prayer for them. Take notice. 1. To whom the Apostle prays, namely, the very God of peace. He is the God of grace, and the God of peace and love. He is the author of peace and lover of concord, and by their peaceableness and unity, from God as the author, those things would best be obtained which he prays for. 2. The things he prays for on behalf of the Thessalonians are their sanctification, that God would sanctify them wholly, and their preservation, that they might be preserved blameless. He prays that they may be wholly sanctified, that the whole man may be sanctified, and then that the whole man, spirit, soul, and body, may be preserved, or, he prays that they may be wholly sanctified, that is, more perfectly, for the best are sanctified but in part while in this world, and therefore we should pray for and press towards complete sanctification. Where the good work of grace is begun, it shall be carried on, be protected and preserved, and all those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus shall be preserved to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And because, if God did not carry on his good work in the soul, it would miscarry, we should pray to God to perfect his work, 
and preserve us blameless, free from sin and impurity, till at length we are presented faultless before the throne of His glory with exceeding joy. 2. His comfortable assurance that God would hear His prayer, faithful is He who calleth you, who will also do it, verse 24. The kindness and love of God had appeared to them in calling them to the knowledge of His truth, and the faithfulness of God was their security that they should persevere to the end, and therefore, the Apostle assures them, God would do what He desired, He would effect what He had promised, He would accomplish all the good pleasure of His goodness towards them. Note, our fidelity to God depends upon His faithfulness to us. 3. His request of their prayers, Brethren, pray for us, verse 25. We should pray for one another, and brethren should thus express brotherly love. This great apostle did not think it beneath him to call the Thessalonians brethren, nor to request their prayers. Ministers stand in need of their people's prayers, and the more people pray for their ministers the more good ministers may have from God, and the more benefit people may receive by their ministry. For, his salutation, greet all the brethren with a holy kiss, verse 26. Thus the apostle sends a friendly salutation from himself, and Silvanus, and Timotheus, and would have them salute each other in their names, and thus he would have them signify their mutual love and affection to one another by the kiss of charity, 1 Peter 5 verse 14, which is here called a holy kiss, to intimate how cautious they should be of all impurity in the use of this ceremony, then commonly practiced as it should not be a treacherous kiss like that of Judas, so not a lascivious kiss like that of the harlot, Proverbs 7 verse 13. 5. His solemn charge for the reading of this epistle, verse 27. This is not only an exhortation, but an adjuration by the Lord. And this epistle was to be read to all the holy brethren. It is not only allowed to the common people to read the scriptures, and what none he should prohibit, but it is their indispensable duty and what they should be persuaded to do. In order to this, these holy oracles should not be kept concealed in an unknown tongue, but translated into the vulgar languages, that all men, being concerned to know the scriptures, may be able to read them and be acquainted with them. The public reading of the law was one part of the worship of the Sabbath among the Jews in their synagogues, and the scriptures should be read in the public assemblies of Christians also. 6. The apostolical benediction that is usual in other epistles the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Verse 28. We need no more to make us happy than to know that grace which our Lord Jesus Christ has manifested, be interested in that grace which he has purchased, and partake of that grace which dwells in him as the head of the church. This is an ever-flowing and overflowing fountain of grace to supply all our wants.